Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Association Rockstars, where we hear about the journey and insights of amazing association executives and partners who are building the association industry of tomorrow. I'm Lowell Applebaum, CEO of Vistacova, and your host, where we partner with organizations on strategy and governance. Uh, and it's my extreme pleasure to have with me today, Jeff DeCanya, AIMP, FRSA, FASAE. Jeff is the Executive Advisor for Foresight First in Reston, Virginia. He's an association contrarian, a foresight practitioner, governing de governance designer, stakeholder successor advocate, and stewardship catalyst. It's a heck of a business card. <laughs> In August 2019, Jeff became the 32nd recipient of ASAE's Academy of Leaders Award, the association's highest individual honor given to consultants or industry partners in recognition of their support of ASAE and the association community. Uh, and every time I have a conversation with Jeff, I walk away thinking bigger, broader, and differently. And so I'm really excited to have you with us today, sir. Thanks very much, Lowell. And I actually have a question for you as we get started, which is, yes. do you prefer Dr. Applebaum, Dr. A, Dr. L, Dr. Lowell? What's your preferred? You know, well, so so <laughs> so far, the the, uh, the title of doctor has only come into play when the kids want to make fun of me. So, <laughs> well, I, I I appreciate you bringing me on um, the show, and I I want to congratulate you on that uh, terrific accomplishment. It's Thank it's you. a real testament to your uh, to your commitment and your um, and your fortitude. To, uh, to also, pursue that because it's also known as stubbornness. So, we'll, <laughs> yeah. well, you do need to have that to uh, to make that happen. So, congratulations. Thank you. Well, well, we'll go from perhaps my strength of being stubborn to ask you about one of yours. Uh, as I was saying, I have kiddos at home. We often talk in our house around strengths and how sometimes they are superpowers. And so, I want to ask you as you think about your illustrious career and what you bring to the table and your brilliance and wisdom, the change that you bring. What do you find is one of your strengths, one of your superpowers that you bring to the association realm? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because there, there's so much conversation these days about this idea of superpowers. And I, I guess I just see it a little differently in the sense of, you know, we each of us has something that we can do, we can contribute that's important. And um, and we should we should build on that. We should use that. And I think for me, the contribution that I've tried to make throughout my career, especially in these last 22, three years that I've been advising associations is uh, being a contrarian, right? Which is not always universally um, understood or universally embraced. Um, but for me, being a contrarian is about purposeful provocation. Um, you know, in a community of organizations, which, uh, you know, both of us are deeply committed to, we also know that there's a, uh, a deep sense of reverence for the past and tradition, and sometimes ways of thinking that are no longer useful in the world in which we find ourselves. So the, the, what I try to do as a contrarian um, is bring that purposeful provocation, challenging orthodox beliefs, um, you know, offering different perspectives on how to look at things um, and offering next practices. And I think the most important purposeful provocation or next practice that, um, that I've offered in the course of my career uh, is focusing on the board's duty of foresight, which I know we'll talk about today, um, but uh, among other things. So for me, you know, I'm 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 an association contrarian. I didn't always come easily to that idea. I I, I fought it for a while. Yeah. Um, um. But ultimately, I leaned into it because I recognized that it had specific kind of value in our conversation in our community, and so I've embraced it. And I'm glad that I have because I think it serves the association community, even again if it's not always something people want to hear. 
yeah. uh, I feel I feel that it brings a, a necessary contribution. I mean, I'm so interested in it because it's a it is a unique strength and it's a much needed one, uh, and the ability to hear disparate points of views as any organization is considering potential paths forward is something that should add richness to dialogue and decisions. Do you find that your disposition as a contrarian around issues of substance is something that you always had? Is it something that developed as you worked, as, it, as your professional life developed, right? Like what was sort of the nascency of it? You know, I, 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 interesting interesting question. I, I, I think where it started for me was always, um, you know, having curiosity around things. Part, part of the reason why I, um, you know, you and I have talked about this and I have been accepted to and never pursued two different doctoral programs. And part of the reason why that happened is because for me is because I, I'm, I'm interested in a lot of things and, and doing that kind of work requires you to be, have really strong focus on one thing for a long time to get yeah. from start to finish. Right. And I knew that I would be distracted, um, you know, because I'm looking at so many different things. I just couldn't, you know, uh, maintain that same focus on the single question to get from A to B to C to D to finish that kind of uh, experience. And so I think just being curious around things, um, asking questions really, and then honing the ability to ask questions, and then being open to the idea that just because the accepted wisdom, the orthodox belief, you know, the assumptions we make about how the world works, um, you know, wasn't necessarily the case. Like there were there were reasons why those beliefs weren't always true. And, and I think that's how it just developed, you know, over time and that, and being able to sort of pose that question and hear things and say, you know, that's not quite right. And let's, let's stay open to the idea that it could be something else and pulling in other ways of looking at it. So I, I think that there was something quite natural to it in my love of learning mm. um, and, and the curiosity that goes along with that. And it's just something that have, I've shaped and focused on, especially once I got over the internal struggle of do I want to be a contrarian? Do I want to be known that way? Right. Um, because not everyone's gonna like it. And once I got over that, and I'm like, you know what, this is this is what I do. And this, and again, I see a purpose to it. Um, and I always try to be purposeful about it. It's not for effect, you know. I don't do this for effect. I'm not trying yeah. to, you know, generate heat. Uh, really, what I'm trying to do is is hopefully bring, you know, shed light on on conversations by offering a different point of view. So I, I think it. It's just it's developed naturally over time, but it started with you know a, a lifelong commitment to the importance of learning, curiosity, questioning, and and you know those kinds of attributes and those kinds of skills. You know, you speak about this idea of uh, decision to accept being like not to accept but to embrace the contrarian point of view as something that was additive to the community and to the space. Uh, I'm wondering in your career path, right, like. Was there a moment that that happened or did you, was it in a specific role that that kept coming up and you had to decide? Was it a moment of like between being inside an organization, deciding to start your own practice, right? What was the inflection point where that was the decision that you like, this is something you want to bring to the table? Yeah. So I think, you know, the context I would wrap around that is uh, I didn't always know that associations would be my career. Um, I started out in associations, you know, pretty shortly after college uh, in the late 1900s, as we say now. And um, uh, and I 
I tried to leave twice. You know, I tried to like find other career paths, other things that I thought I wanted to do. I went to grad school at, with the whole intention of going in a different direction. And each time that I tried to leave, I got pulled back. Circumstances pulled me back in for one reason or another. And then ultimately where I think the first struggle really was, did I want to make this my career or did I want to do something else? When I decided that I was going to make this my career, it really became a decision saying I wasn't choosing associations. For some reason, associations were choosing me. And so, and I got comfortable with that choice. And then I do think that part of the reason why the the willingness to be the contrarian and bring purposeful provocation to the conversation emerged is because ultimately those first 10 years of my career, when I was in associations as a staff person, I was going to, uh, I, I knew that at some point I'd have to move to do my own thing because there were so many things I wanted to do and thought I could contribute, but I, I didn't know that I could do that one organization at the time. Yeah. And just being in one place on staff and trying to do that, you know, sort of do what I do. And and the roles that I had didn't always naturally lend themselves to that sort of thing. So I knew that I'd have to go out on my own. It was a subject of conversation, uh, both in inner monologue and, and conversations with others for a period of years. And yeah. then ultimately the decision I made that decision in, in again, partly due to circumstance um, in late 2001 and, and started doing this in 2002. And I'm glad that I have, because it's given me the opportunity to really refine this. I'm a much better contrarian in 2024 than I was um, in 2002 because I didn't really know how to be that. And I think I've learned over the last 22 plus years how to do it in a way that is beneficial rather than something that's just provocative, but not particularly helpful. I have two sort of paths of questioning I want to go down. Uh, The one I might come to, I think, in a moment, in, in a few moments, is how you decide or where things come to you where you find your contrarian voices needed, like topic-wise. But if it's okay, I want to ask first about your perspective of whether the role of contrarian is something that more organizations should look to intentionally have within them, right? Should Should they look to have staff that play that role or board members that play that role? And have you seen any models where that's been something that has worked well? I think that you want to include a variety of perspectives in your organization. You absolutely need a variety of perspectives at the board level. I don't know that people should be playing roles. Um, I've never been a huge fan of, you know, I've heard, I've seen people say, you know, someone on the board should be the devil's advocate and that sort of thing, which is a, a loaded term in its own yeah. right. And uh, and I'm not sure that that's really, in my view, very helpful because it sort of it confines people to the role rather than it being an organic thing. You know, what I try to, what I try to do is like by, by coming in as an outsider, I'm introducing a different point of view into the system, but I'm not going to be in the system for very long. Right. Or certainly not on a, on a, on a, on a forever basis. Right. It's going to, eventually I'm going to exit. And I think that's a great way to, to, to do it because it injects something in challenges, the prevailing view challenges, the orthodoxy and gives people different things to think about. But ultimately, it's up to the entire group, whether it's the staff group or the board group or any other you know intact group like that, um, to determine how they're going to handle it. So I think what we should be focusing on is ensuring that we have the greatest level of diversity in our organizations, the greatest level of inclusion in our organizations, 
and the greatest level of psychological safety for people to be able to say what needs to be said so that people do not fear retribution um, and do not fear you know any kind of uh, bad things happening to them because they speak the truth to power. And no. and so I think rather than casting people in roles, we should be creating the context in our organizations in which purposeful provocation and challenging orthodoxy and you know asking hard questions is just very commonplace. It's something that happens. And, and that may require, will certainly require bringing in people comfortable doing that, but I think it also demands that we be developing people to do that, that we help them develop those human skills um, to be able to, to bring that to bear in their work every day and not uh, be reticent in questioning things that just don't seem to make sense or that seem to build on orthodoxy rather than questioning the orthodoxy. We've got to reorient our organizations toward the future. And I think having people being capable of doing that and helping them get there as an ongoing process of development uh, is essential to that. And so that's the way that I, I like to approach it. And uh, I think that's going to best serve associations. In advising organizations for the past two decades plus, and a lot of your work, of course, with boards, do you see sort of the longitudinal trajectory being one of greater safe, like psychological and cultural safety where you see more of the shared responsibility for providing that disparate point of view is something that is more welcome nowadays and more included in leadership? Or do you find it's going the other way where it's not as present and harder to for that to be evidenced? It, there's no clean answer to that view. Like I, I certainly see in certain situations where it exists and in others, I see that it does not exist. And I think one of my greatest disappointments of recent years is that you know during the time of lockdown, during the worst part of the global pandemic, right. when everyone was being forced to reconsider their assumptions and orthodoxy was being challenged out of necessity because there were no alternatives. And yeah. so you literally could not rely upon these deep-seated assumptions that we've always made about how the world works because the world wasn't working in that way at that time. So the only choice was forward. And even if it was uncomfortable, and as soon as our pretty shortly after we got back to something that felt more familiar, because let's be clear that none of what's happened since is normal, right? We're in a very different world than we were. I have no idea know, how to define normal nowadays. No yeah, idea. It's, there's, no, there's no new normal. There's no next normal. We're just in a different space. We are in a liminal space yes. between where we were pre-pandemic and where we are now. Um, and you know, even though technically the pandemic is not over, the health emergency is over. And so you know, here we are. And, and I think what's happened is people have gotten back to that place of, okay, let's make this seem as familiar and pre-pandemic and normal as possible. And that creates complacency. So, so I have concerns that, you know, at the board and, and look, let's introduce another point to this, which I think cannot be ignored. That is essential. Everyone's exhausted, right? Yes. Staff is exhausted. Boards are exhausted. CEOs are, everyone is tired. It's been an incredibly horrifying in many ways, four years, right? We have lost so much in these last four years and in an incredibly painful way. People have suffered, you know, in real human terms. So none of that can be ignored. And we got to, it, it's very easy to forget that. We've got to keep that front and center. You know, millions of people have died yes. and people have long-term effects of illness and there's all kinds of follow-on effects. So all of that goes into the nature of the conversation we're talking about. And I think that, you know, where we have to go from here, I, I wish that 
I could say to people, okay, we can call time out for a few months while you relax. We can't do that, unfortunately, because everything we knew before this decade began, right? When I first started calling it the turbulent 20s before it began, we knew that the turbulence was coming at us in the form of artificial intelligence and in the form of the climate crisis and in the form of human inequality and, and in the form of you know, growing global ideological extremism. We knew those forces of instability and disruption were going to be factors in the 2020s. We knew that. And then the turbulence arrived in the first 90 days in something that we were not prepared for, even though we knew that could happen too. So here we are in 2024 and all of those other factors that we knew were going to be there are, are front, are front right. and center in what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the AI issue now. We're dealing with the climate issue now. We're dealing with the human inequality issue now. We're dealing with ideological extremism now. We're dealing with all those things right now. And they've in some ways been accelerated and intensified because of you know what's happened before in just the last four you know years you know fifteen hundred plus days that we've been in this in this decade. So that's you know that's what we have to grapple with. And unfortunately for staff and CEOs and boards and everyone who's involved in association decision making today and going forward, um, there's no timeouts to call. We have to figure out a way to help people deal with what's happening with them personally while at the same time you know, asking them, challenging them to do, to play the role that they, that they occupy and, and fulfill it, you know, in the way that it needs to be, it needs to be handled. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's not going to be easy for any of us to do this, but yet it's, it's necessary because there are no alternatives. I mean, you, you've listed four mega trend disruptors. Uh, I know there's more, you know, the, the, the mantra and the focus you have as a contrarian against orthodoxy while also keeping an eye to the future and these coming trends, how do you, there's so many things you could focus on as a contrarian, right? Like, is there some, I don't know if it's methodology, but how you decide where to focus like your effort in terms of raising awareness around critical issues when there's so many you could focus on uh, I know that, you know, recently, certainly we were just talking just last week, right? The ethics and AI is something that you've been talking about a lot recently, right? How do you choose which to focus on when orthodoxy could really cover so many things? So it, it, it you know, it starts with um, having, you know, a strong grounding in, in foresight and, you know, foresight methodologies and, it starts with, you know, having that strong commitment to intentional learning, you know, something I, I talk about in every talk that I give, intentional learning is non-negotiable in the turbulent 20s and spoiler alert, it's non-negotiable in the, th- in the threatening 30s ahead too. Yeah. Um, so so there'll be no change in, in that particular statement anytime soon. Um, so I think it bring, you know, bringing intentional learning, bringing the foresight, you know, capabilities that I've, I've developed over time through my own ongoing learning. Um, and, um, and then just really having, I, I think a, a deeper understanding that, than I had when I started certainly of what associations have meant to, you know, the country historically, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a de Tocqueville guy, right? I, I go, I, I love the notion of associations as central to the American experience, to the fabric of America's organizations that are formed by people to accomplish important things that serve common good that serve, you know, human well-being. Um, so, you know, my, my thinking about associations goes all the way back to, to the 19th century, you know, to, to today. And, and, and I think that part of where I'm tending to focus more and more now 
is, um, and, and the issues that I named there, you're absolutely right. When you look at you know, the acronym that I use, others use different forms of it, but I talk about STEEP, right? Social, technological, economic, environmental, political fo- factors and forces that shape society. When I think about it in the context of associations, I think about it in terms of that idea that associations are organizations that really from their, their origin were about shared humanity, right? About mm-hmm. shared, you know, collaboration and relationship building between people for some purposeful endeavor, right? So then you look at the issues that really threaten that or that really um, could amplify that. And and the ones that that I focus on, right, the ones I've articulated here are the ones that I think are are sort of in that nexus of what associations have been about historically and what our future is going to be about, right? And, and certainly two of those, particularly AI and climate change, are the ones that have the greatest global, you know, effect over the long term, right? There's not, that's not to say that issues of human inequality and ideological extremism are not incredibly important, but you look at the way AI is already reshaping, you know, the world, um, certainly in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months uh, with generative AI uh, arriving, you know, kind of unexpectedly. And and certainly we've known for decades, you know, for a century, probably more or more about the impact of, of, of what we've done to the climate. Um, So these are issues that, you know, associations are going to affect associations, associations affect them, associations, uh, stakeholders are affected by them. And then ultimately, you know, kind of where it all comes down to is what are we doing today in 2024 to leave our organizations and, and everything that they touch better than how we found them for the benefit of those who will follow us in these coming years and decades, particularly the people that we will never know personally, you know, the, yeah. the successors over the long term who will never be known to us. Um, but who are relying upon us in 2024 to make better decisions and take actions that will leave things better for them if we possibly can do it. So there's a lot that goes into it, but I can, I always, the one final thing I'll say is I, you know, is if I'm challenging orthodoxy in organizations or in associations or in the community, I'm always looking at my own orthodoxy too. Like that's a necessary part of what I'm doing is I'm always examining, you know, am I thinking in an orthodox way? Am I, um, perpetuating orthodoxy versus challenging it in the own the way that I do my work. So I'm yeah. always looking at that. And so if things emerge in ways that challenge my belief system, my orthodoxy, then I absolutely will adapt to that because I, I would it would be hypocritical for me to go into someone's organization and, and say challenge your orthodoxy if I wasn't doing it myself. Well, I think that part of uh, how you explained your approach to this is this comes from a foundation of curiosity and learning. So that's where this started. And uh, although the first blush that organizations or leaders may have is with the contrarian point of view, to understand the origin of it is if you're curious and you learn, then you come to realizations and perspectives that aren't just about the truths of the past, right? And those those have to be confronted uh, if you're going to articulate a different future that you want to see. The the time. Yeah, I mean, you, I was going to say about that. You know, you know too, as someone who has pursued a lot of learning in in your life, right? Yeah. That the more you learn, the less you know, right? Yes. And um, and I think that that is the that is really what you know what learning um is about. Sometimes people, you know, as and and my my graduate degree is in education specifically, yeah. right? A master's of education in learning and teaching, so that I went to the ed school for that, and. So you, you know, by actually immersing, you know, myself in that process, 
that was the, you know, that's the big takeaway is that you are, you are constantly having to learn because if you stop, then you will be too settled in your point of view around things. And you'll, you know, when people say, well, I know what I know, well, that's the problem is that, you know, is, is that you need to be able to push your thinking beyond what you know. And we always, you know, I always talk about, you know, there's the stuff we know, there's right. the stuff we know we don't know. And then there's the stuff we don't know that we don't know. And, and that part, that DKDK part of this, you know, sort of metaphorical pie, if you will, is, is the part that's growing in a world of AI and in a world of, you know, enormous technology and, you know, all the other factors we're talking about. So that's, that's the only way to really maintain some sense of edge and how you're going to address the issues that you're facing in any aspect of your life is to, is to not stay is to stay mobile rather than than staying you know stable in terms of the or you know folk too um, uh, too uh, too structured in the way you're thinking about uh, the learning process. The uh, the time always goes by quickly in these conversations, and especially with you. You know, I usually wrap up these uh, conversations with asking someone about what they hopefully in the future want to see as their legacy as they reflect on the impact they've been able to make. Uh, I'm happy to hear what your insight is on that. Though with the, uh, I'm going to give an alternate, which is, it feels like you bring a different path of possibility to organizations and the perspectives they bring to the table, right? The contrarian to show you what you don't know that you need to be considering. Is there a hopeful future that you hope that like the work you're doing is creating that will look differently for how associations exist or make impact in 10, 20, 30 years that you hope that the work you're doing is going to create? Well, I mean, I'll say a couple of things about, about each aspect of what you're asking. I think the first thing is I, I don't think too much about my own legacy, really, in a sense. I, I instead, and I kind of alluded to it a moment ago, for me, the preoccupying question of my professional life is what will our successors say about us, Right. Um, and, and that's different for me from the legacy conversation because, um, legacy conversations often result in developing a narrative in which we feature as the hero of a story that we want others to tell. And, and for me, again, it goes back to what I said a moment ago, that it's really about what actions are we going to take? Cause we don't really get to influence what our successors will say about us unless we take actions that will leave things better for them, right? They'll decide in their own time, in their own yeah. way, whether or not we've done right by them, right? And that's the way it's always been. We wanted our predecessors two or three or more decades ago to make choice, good choices that would leave things better for us because that's always been the expectation. And I don't think that those who will follow us should have any less expectation that that's what we're doing, even though I think we've not done a really great job necessarily at that. Um, and in a, you know, in all contexts, on balance, I think we we owe a lot more to those who who will follow us than I think we we've given them so far. Um, I think in general, you know, for me, what what I what I want, what I'm hoping for for associations, um, and particularly focusing on boards, is I want them to to choose the future. I want them to embrace the duty of foresight. I want them to have a you know that this idea that they have to stand up for their successors' futures, right? That that's their yes. role, right? More than anything else, what we need boards to do is to stand up for their successors' futures by being intentional learners, by proposing and acting upon sacrifices in the short term that will accrue to the benefit of the organizations and successors in the future, that they will take long-term action, 
that they will have a fearless reckoning with their orthodoxy in order to think differently about things and, and challenge the status quo and move into a new direction, that they will be focusing on, you know, really building future adaptive organizations, organizations that can be adaptive to the context that we're talking about, rather than being buffeted, you know, by forces beyond their control. And certainly, you know, not trying to quote unquote, future-proof our organizations, because that sounds good, but it's not achievable. Um, and there's all kinds of reasons why I just think it's not a great idea. But if we can build future adaptation into our organizations, the way we think about everything that we do, then that for me is a good thing, because I think associations have the opportunity to be the kind of 21st century societal institutions mm-hmm. that we need, right? Because we have such low trust in different sectors, low trust in government, media, business, tech, you know, across the board, there, we've had historically low levels of trust in institutions. And I think our organizations, if we're willing to um, think differently, lean into the future, choose the future and embrace the kinds of approaches that I think we can use, um, then I think we can be those institutions that organizations will gravitate toward to say this group has the legitimacy of saying we care about what happens next. We're not just serving our own interests. We're not focused on self-interest. We're focused on shared interest. And, and trying to build mutually beneficial, you know, positive some outcomes for the future. That's who I think we can be. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to advocate for. And that's what I'm trying to, to sort of talk with organizations about. And, and I'm hopeful that, that we can get there. Um, but I think we have, um, uh, we have to act quickly to, to begin to move in that direction. Well, I, I hope organizations see the opportunity that you're describing for the role that they can have. Uh, and myself and all others in the space appreciate not just the contrarian point of view you bring, but also the clarity of the opportunity for the better future that exists with that view on orthodoxy and reality of where the role associations can play in making a better future. I'm so appreciative of you spending time with us here today. Well, I appreciate that. Appreciate you too, uh, Dr. A, and appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. Thank you, as always, to Amy Hager, who's been helping to, on the all the interwebs, make sure the conversations are happening, and to everyone who tunes in every time as we learn together from brilliant minds such as Jeff. And we look forward to seeing you next time on Association Rockstars. Till then, Association Rock on. Mm-hmm.